0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-arsed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the ancient Olympic Games, which, of course, I'm sure you heard of these, held in Greece for centuries, a very long time ago. Uh, And, and of course, they were the precursor to the modern Olympic Games, which, uh, I mean, what a a funny old coincidence are going on right now at time of recording. Very, uh, very... I mean, unusual, very fortuitous timing, I guess, uh, that uh, this episode just happens to come out when the Olympics are going on. Oh, geez. I, I mean, I guess it'll help the SEO a little bit, but oh, very lucky indeed there. Anyway, um, you've probably heard of the ancient games, of course. You might have some kind of an idea exactly what they're all about, but really, really fascinating to learn more about these, uh, find out exactly what was involved with them. And also, most surprisingly, for how bloody long they ran, the ancient Olympic Games lasted almost 12 months. 100 years. We, I mean, we've barely, we barely made it past 120 years in the modern era. These ancient games, they stuck around for a long, long time before they ultimately uh, fell into decline or were abolished. Um, now, you won't, be, you won't be surprised to learn that, you know, the ancient Olympic Games didn't involve things like, I don't know, table tennis or skateboarding. But you might be surprised to learn about some of the old events and, 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 and the rules, or well, actually, more specifically, the lack of rules that governed them the games weren't just a sporting event as well i mean they're, they're not just a sporting event today principally they are of course but back then even less so they were a big religious uh, huge religious festival big political event really uh and we'll talk about all this and and that's a very important and very interesting political implications for the region over the centuries uh today we're going to talk about the history of these events uh we're going to talk about why and how the game started uh how they you know change and develop over time as, as more sports and, and disciplines were added. And of course, what ultimately brought about the end of the ancient Olympic Games as well. And we're also going to compare the ancient games to the modern ones and talk about some similarities and differences. Um you do tend to get a lot fewer naked, greased up Spartans cutting about at the games these days. Uh so let's get to it. Off we go here down the track, or I guess I should say off down the stadium, I suppose. There you go. Just a little 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 ancient Olympic joke there for you. Hope you enjoyed that one and anyway, here we go. <clears throat> we're going all the way back. We're going all the way back here to 776 BCE before the common era remember we'll be counting years down rather than up for most of this podcast today so 776 uh, BCE followed by 775 and and so on and so forth until we reach the common era now 776 is widely considered to be the year in which the first games ever were held although it may have been earlier than this in 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 fairness most ancient historians agree it was 776 but there's a chance there's a chance it might have been beforehand there are definitely obviously other athletic events held before this this year, Not just in the Greek world as well, in, in other parts of the uh, you know, the ancient world. Although none of these were held uh, in the same place at regular four-year intervals like the ancient Olympic Games were. And, and just to give you a sense, I mean, you know, as I say, we're going all the way back to 776. And just to give you a sense of how long ago that actually is, right? None of the seven wonders of the ancient world have been built yet, except for obviously the Great Pyramid of Giza, right? You can hear about all them, episode 111 and 112, get across them there, right? So there's only one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Roman Republic, over 250 years away, still a long way from the Roman Republic developing, right? And even bloody Socrates, right? He, He won't be born for another three centuries. So we are going a long way back here. I mean, you know, if if, if we sort of, again, I've talked about this in podcasts before, we tend to kind of conflate ancient history. And, you know, you sort of think, oh, you know, ancient Olympic Games, Socrates, probably within the same kind of wheelhouse, right? But the distance between the Olympic Games starting and the birth of Socrates is the equivalent of, you know, the year 1720, right? And today. So, a huge difference, a huge distance uh, between uh, between you know ancient different things happening in ancient history. Anyway, seven seventy six, the first Olympic Games they were held at Olympia. Obviously, um, uh, we talked about Olympia a little bit during those Seven Wonder episodes. Actually, this is where the Statue of Zeus would later be built around four hundred thirty five BCE. Um, but Olympia, it began as a small sacred site uh, near the, near a town called Elis, right? Uh, and it was this. It was at this site that these games were held. As the centuries passed, it developed, became richer and more opulent. Grand temples, treasuries, all these sporting facilities, whatever else. But, uh, you know, at the time this story starts, just a small, um, a small holy site, right, uh, with, a, with obviously a huge, a huge future ahead of it. Now, the games were held in honor of Zeus, who's the king of the Greek gods. Of course, everyone knows this. Um, and in time, they would grow to have huge feasts, celebrations that would take place to worship him outside this, you know, as I say, huge big temples, big religious complexes, whatever else that were built there for him. And there were, uh, the games, in time, as they developed, they were overseen by Elis, this city-state I mentioned before. But citizens of other nearby Greek city-states would travel to the Games from nearby to begin with, but then eventually from that, from throughout the entire Greek world, from across the Mediterranean, you know, northern Africa, even over in Iberia, all over the place, right? It was this common uh, cultural centre point for the Greek world, and, and Olympia became an enormously important part of that with the Games being held every four years. But back in 776, the first Olympic Games, they were a little more humble or... I guess, I mean, we probably shouldn't really call them the Olympic Games now when I'm thinking about it because it probably should be the first Olympic game. There was only one event, the stadium, right? This is a running race that was held over around 190 metres. We think about 192 metres the stadium was run. Um, and it was won by a cook, a bloke who's, whose name was Coroibus uh, of Ellis, right? So just a local fellow. he come down the, the first ever Olympic Games or oh, Olympic game, run a race, and there you go. He's got that, well, not the gold medal. He was awarded the traditional prize, which, which was an olive branch and... And I mean, that that was it. That was the first official Olympic Games. It wasn't an opening ceremony, no bloody closing ceremony, nothing like that. One bloke won a race and then he went back to his kitchen to keep cooking and that was, that was it all over. But still, it was the beginning of something that would grow into not just a local or, or regional, but ultimately, you know, millennia later, a global celebration of sport. To begin with, the Olympic Games drew people from the local region, right? Peloponnesia, uh, the area of Greece in which Olympia itself is situated. But as time went on, and as the the prestige and the fame of these games continue to spread, as I say, people travel from all throughout the Greek world to come and take part, or just watch. Every four years, these athletes they would converge on Olympia, take part in the in the festival there, and uh, the spectators would watch the, well, to begin with, just the running races that were held for the first seventy years or so. That was actually the only type of event. Let's 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 get underway here with a little bit of a timeline of the games, and we'll focus in particular on the events that were added. Uh, as the years went on but as I say it started with running races initially it was just the stadium right this race that I mentioned before uh, the word stadium once it went through its latinization it gives us the modern word stadium right of course a stadium a big venue for sporting events whatever else but it comes from this Greek word stadium which just meant a race that was around 192 meters long Um, it began with blokes lining up at one end of the track the track was made of packed dirt And then they just run in a straight line towards the other, to the other end of the track. Uh, After a while, rudimentary starting blocks were used. These were just slabs of rock with two grooves that were carved into them. You could dig your toes into them. Uh, A bloke standing next to it, uh, next to the track would blast on a trumpet. Um, you'd be off, run full pelt down the other end, and there'd be people at the finish line to judge who won. If it ended up being a tie, the whole race would be run again. They didn't have them bloody fancy laser-guided stopwatches or, or anything like that. It was just a bloke going, oh, yeah, he was ahead. I guess give him the, the olive branch, and if it was too close to call, they'd run the entire race again. But blokes line up, trumpet blast, off they go, and then there's a winner, and that's that, right? No second place, no third place, nothing. But in 724 BC, a couple of years later... The Dialos was introduced, which was also a running race. However, this one had the interesting twist of having the runners line up, trumpet blasted go, they run to one end of the track, turn around, run all the way back. It was effectively a, the double the length of the stadium. They had to run down to one end of the track, around a post, and then back to the starting line. And this race seems to have gone over quite well, the Dialos, because uh, at the very next games, just four years later in 720 BCE, the Dolikos was introduced. Now, this was a very long-distance running race compared to uh, the Diolos or the, or the stadium, right? Uh, nowhere near as long as the modern marathon, which, by the way, was never an ancient Olympic sport. Interestingly, uh, despite obviously it's being it's the fact that it is linked to ancient Greek history, the legend of uh, Pheidippides, the the bloke who supposedly ran from Marathon to Athens to deliver news of the of the victory of the Battle of Marathon, before then just keeling over and dying um no I don't know how much truth there is behind that but uh, the, the marathon was actually never never uh, an ancient olympic sport it's only been a modern olympic event but the dolichos this long this long distance event was around 5 kilometers in length and it did have something in common with the marathon because it wasn't wasn't just run along the stadium track it was actually run around the olympic grounds right like a marathon would be today through a city the winding city streets whatever else um, the the five the five kilometer dolichos would be run a, a, along a track that wound through all the temples and complexes and other buildings and whatever else in Olymp- in Olympus itself. But um, that was that essentially for the opening stages of the ancient Olympic games for the initial for the initial period of the of the history of the games it was a relatively minor. Regional religious festival for Peloponnesians who would come together, bit of feasting, bit of celebrating, get on the uh, get on the drinks, couple of running races, and no worries at all. That was that. But as you've no doubt guessed, as the years passed and as these games became bigger, more famous, more popular, more illustrious, more prestigious, people from all throughout the Greek world would travel to Olympia to attend. Well, I should correct myself here because when I say people, I really shouldn't say people. I should just say men, because outside of a few corner case exceptions, women weren't allowed to participate in the games, and they may not have even been allowed to attend. We're not 100% sure on this, right? But we we do know that the only people who could take part in the games were free citizens of Greek city, states, or kingdoms. Uh, So if you weren't Greek, if you weren't uh, weren't free, if you weren't a man, no good, right? Uh, The only way that a woman could be even remotely involved with the competition itself was as the owner of a chariot or horse's that could be entered in the equestrian events. We'll come to the equestrian equestrian events in a little bit. But outside of that, the games were a male-only affair. I did read some sources that said that women weren't allowed to attend at all. Uh, Others indicated that it was just married women who were barred from being there. I'm not sure. Whatever the case, like most aspects of most of human history, the ancient Olympic Games, unashamedly sexist. And, you know, it's not going to surprise anyone to hear that whatsoever, because that is just the case with so much of, uh, of human history. Anyway, as time went on, more events were added. You know, there were a bigger number of, uh, of blokes coming in to watch the games, m- other sports that, that people loved in the Greek world, and, and, and as, as the years went on, these were added to the games as well as the running races. In 708 BCE, both wrestling and the pentathlon made their debut. Wrestling, or parlay, as it was called uh, back then, enormously popular sport in ancient Greece, very, very popular Indeed um and as you probably can guess it involved two blokes attempting to either throw the opponent to the ground force them out of the bounds of the the area they were wrestling in like the ring or whatever you want to call it or force them into submission through a through a hold or a or you know one of those various moves that you see where they're like pressing them down or they've got their joints locked up or something i'm not a bit i'm not much of a wrestleman myself so i don't know all the all the ins and outs but you know what wrestling is and this is, uh, this was one of the uh, – well, it was the very first sport, uh, the very first non-running sport that was added to the ancient Olympic Games roster. Uh, no hitting, no striking, no kicking, no biting, no eye-gouging, no grabbing the ghoulies. Uh, wrestling was quite regulated. There were quite a lot of rules, uh, especially compared to some other sports we'll come to in due course. And to enforce these rules, there was a referee who would be there on hand to watch the bout and make sure all of these rules were ob- uh, obeyed. And of course, as I say, parlay had a lot of them with all these different ones. You couldn't, you couldn't hit someone, couldn't bite them, all, that, all the rest of it there, right? Now, the referee would control the bouts, right? He'd keep a close eye on things. He'd indicate when points had been scored through a thrower or a submission or whatever. Um, but best of all, the best job, the funniest job that the referee had was to punish wrestlers who broke the rules. Now, these days, you know, there'd be a foul or a penalty or, you know, maybe even a disqualification, something like that. Oh, back then, nothing like that. No, no, no. If you broke the rules, right, let's say you bloody kicked someone or you had a chomp on on, on them or whatever else like that. Do you know what would happen? This is not a joke. The referee would come over with the stick that they had with them, right, as part of their job as a referee, and they would whip you then and there, with this, you know, stick or switch or whatever they had, they would give you a flogging in front of the entire crowd. If you did the wrong thing, you'd get belted around by the referee. Can you believe that? Bloody brilliant. You can just imagine these great big hulking wrestlers being told off by a referee who's half their size, picks up his stick or something like that, or whack them around the shins for too much finger twisting, something like that. Absolutely, absolutely terrific. they a bit of corporal punishment for, uh, for any of the wrestlers who were, uh, were caught breaking any of the rules. But in addition to wrestling, This wasn't the only sport that was added uh, in 708, as I mentioned. The the, the second sport that was added, or or, 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 or quite a range of them, was the pentathlon, right? Now, this is the ancient pentathlon. Very, very different from the modern pentathlon. The modern pentathlon, as you might know, it involves fencing, swimming, equestrian show jumping, pistol shooting, and running. Those are the five sports. Back then, however, the ancient pentathlon instead involved running, javelin, discus, long jump, and wrestling. Now I wonder exalted listeners I've got a bit of a puzzle for you a bit of a riddle here Can you figure out the common thread between the ancient and the modern pentathlons Now the events that they comprised of they're not chosen randomly here they were picked for the same reason across both the ancient and modern versions It's a nice little riddle have a think about it right if you want to do if you want to do this You can pause the podcast and think about what the connection is between these 10 sports, the five that were grouped in the modern and the five that are grouped in the ancient, right? I'll remind you of them in the modern pentathlon, fencing, swimming, equestrian show jumping, pistol shooting and running, while in the ancient one, it was running, javelin, discus, long jump and wrestling. Again, all these events, they're picked for the same reason. Have a think about it and I'll tell you why in just a sec. All right, you ready? Ready? It is because the five events in each respective era were considered at the time of the respective, the, the respective Pentathlon's founding to be ideal skills for a soldier. Back then, you know, back in the ancient era, soldiers need to be able to run, fight at close quarters. That's wrestling, throw spears. That's the javelin, whatever else. And I, I guess jump a long way. I don't know if that was a big part of soldiering back in the ancient era, but long jump was part of it. I'm sure about that one. Anyway, when the modern Olympics were founded, right, end of, the 19th, uh, end of the 19th century, the pentathlon was adopted from military multi-sport events that tested the abilities of soldiers with things like the sword and the pistol, their ability to ride on horseback, and, of course, running and swimming. The modern pentathlon dates back to, I believe, the early 20th century, but there were precursors to that, again, as you know military multi-sport events. And so pentathlons, both ancient and modern, were designed to test the skills of a soldier, which I I just thought was so... I had no idea about that. I thought it was so interesting to learn that. Anyway, when it comes to the ancient pentathlon, as far as I could uh, find out, things like the discus and the javelin, the long jump... They were never their own individual events like they are today in the modern Olympics. They only took part in the ancient uh, games as part of the pentathlon. But otherwise, they were very similar. For instance, the size and the shape of the discs that were thrown during discus events back then, it hasn't really changed. Over 2,000 years later, we're still using discs of the same size, same shape, and same weight, which is pretty incredible. The long jump, however, very different story. Looks very different uh, back then to what it does today. It was probably, honestly, a little bit more like a triple jump. There are some historians who have suggested that. But what was the the funniest thing about it is that athletes held heavy weights in either hand that they would swing around to propel themselves further than they would be able to jump without them. So, I mean, I don't have any idea how that would work. I guess you're trying to catapult yourself further with the weights. I got no idea, but... I mean, very, very different to these lithe and limber athletes that charge down the thing, you know, charge down the, the track with a big run-up and then f- chuck themselves into the sandpit. Very different back then. You had these weights that uh, you used to try to vault yourself even further. Anyway, 20 years after the addition of the, uh, of the pentathlon and wrestling, uh, the next event was added. Uh, it was boxing. Boxing was also added to the roster here, or pigmachia, as it was called back then. It involved two blokes, usually with leather wraps over their knuckles, Fighting hand to hand as you'd expect. Now, unlike parlay, they could hit each other. Although, like you remember in wrestling, that you couldn't hit or strike or, or do anything like that to your opponent. But in uh, in boxing, you could. Um, but uh, there are a couple of differences between box. Well, you know, it, it's not boxing as we would think about it today. A very a couple of a couple of key differences there. Right. Um, there was no ring. So you, you, the the fighters had a lot more room to move around. There wasn't an area in which they had. I mean, I guess they couldn't, you know, walk halfway across Peloponnesia as they were fighting. But there was no ring that you needed to force them out of, or or uh, ropes for them to you know, to be pushed up against there like that, right? And uh, secondly there were no rounds. They just keep fighting and fighting and fighting until one of them was either knocked out or just collapsed. And when they did collapse, by the way, there was no rule against attacking them on the ground. It was an absolutely brutal sport. If you didn't actively surrender, if you didn't, you know, indicate that you were conceding, your opponent would just batter you until you finally did. It was very different to wrestling in the sense that not just you couldn't um in in boxing obviously you can hit that you could hit your opponent but in you couldn't grab them you couldn't grapple them um you couldn't do anything else like that eye gouging and biting also forbidden um but the biggest difference between modern boxing and ancient boxing this is the most ridiculous thing as well and any fans of, of the sport of boxing will find this one unbelievable here in ancient boxing there were no weight classes Regardless of size or weight or shape or anything else like that, any boxer could fight any other boxer. Imagine that. Imagine boxing with no weight classes, no size restrictions, nothing. That's what ancient Olympic boxing was like. You could Anyone who wanted to box would have to fight against anyone else who had registered as well. So, I mean, you know, I guess I hope for your sake you're a nice big bloke uh, getting into this because otherwise you're probably going to get fed your own teeth. Just like with wrestling as well, there was a, uh, a referee. Uh, who was on hand with a whip or a stick or a switch or whatever to, to punish rule breakers. Uh, but here, here's the funniest thing about what the referees had to do for ancient boxing. If the bout went on too long, remember, there's no rounds. If the bout went on too long, and I don't know, I guess if the ref got bored, I don't know what the line was here, but the referee would step in, right, in order to finish the fight and order the boxers to exchange undefended blows who could to see who could remain standing the longest, Right. I mean, a little bit bloody different to judges awarding victories on points these days. Uh, just a series of free hits until one bloke keels over. Bloody hell, what a brutal sport it was back then. Anyway, in the coming years, more sports followed. In 680 BCE, the four-horse chariot race was added. This was the first of many equestrian events to be a part of the ancient Olympics. And equestrian events became not only very popular, but also enormously illustrious because... It was essentially only the wealthy and famous that it could afford to enter them, and as a result, they made a huge, huge deal out of Olympic horse racing. They were the ones with the champion horses. They were the only ones who could afford to be a be part of it, and a lot of the prestige and and glory that came along with it was a result of the fact that you know the competitors were very, very well-heeled indeed. Now, in time, other equestrian events were added um there was the single rider race after after a couple of years and then much later on the the two horse chariot race rather than just the four horse but with single rider races this was interesting to learn about as well back then these jockeys they didn't use either saddles or stirrups i mean they couldn't use stirrups stirrups wouldn't arrive in europe for over a thousand years uh, hence after this so long stirrups are still a long way away they couldn't possibly use them but the riders they would ride these horses having they'd have to hold on to the speeding horses with nothing more than their thighs. So these jockeys were really putting themselves in a, in a lot of danger as they did this and more's the pity because they weren't the ones that got all the all the glamour and the the, the glory and, and everything else the, the ones it was the owners of the horses who were given the prizes and and what they were the ones that were showered with uh, with all the accolades. So the jockeys and the and the chariot drivers are put the ones putting themselves in harm's way but it's the owner it's the owners of the horses that ends up that end up being the ones who are richly rewarded. Anyway, plenty of question events uh, in addition to these over the coming centuries. I already mentioned the two the two horse chariot race that was very popular. Some other ones that didn't quite make it in terms of popularity included the mule cart race. This one didn't last very long. Imagine that at the Olympics, two mules, you know, they got their little straw hats with their holes cut out for their ears, trotting along a little cart behind them. Brilliant, but somehow that didn't last. Um, But all of these races, right? They were held in the Hippodrome. Of course, you may have heard this before. Hippodrome, huge big flat area, about 780 metres from end to end, divided down the middle with a divider that turned it into a racetrack that the horses could run around and around and around. And these races were a massive spectacle. They involved some very, very famous people at different points as well. Our mate um, Alcibiades, by the way, episode 141, Get Across It, he took part in chariot races in, uh, at the Olympic Games in 416 BCE, um, and there were plenty of other very famous historical figures that got amongst it as well. In 67 CE, the Roman Emperor Nero, he was crowned the champion of a chariot race, even though he was thrown off his chariot during the race. The reason that he was crowned the champion, well, I mean, he was the, the Roman Emperor, but the, the reasoning they used, he was awarded the win on the basis that he would have won if he hadn't been thrown off. So in other words, he wouldn't won if he hadn't, you know, lost an interesting line to take but then again no one wanted to argue with the roman emperor nero was obsessed with being named an olympic champion so much so that he actually forced the organizers to add music and singing events to the games at one point uh which of course he won despite being a terrible singer no one wanted to uh, to vote against the, uh, the you know effectively the most pop- the most I was going to say popular not necessarily popular most powerful bloke uh, around at this point uh funnily enough however after he was assassinated his olympic achievements were declared null and void they were stripped from him uh but only after he was killed so obviously the uh the the spines of those people that you know the the backbones of the people organizing the games were at least a little prone to being uh to being bent ready to pop the question. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Anyway, the last event that I want to discuss here is uh, the pancreation, right? The pancreation introduced the ancient Olympic Games in 648 BCE, and it was one of, if not the most popular sport uh, that was put on display in the ancient Olympic Games. Pancration was essentially ancient MMA. Fighters were allowed to... Well, honestly, it will be a lot quicker if I tell you what they were not allowed to do. There were basically no rules in in uh, pankration. As I say, it was just ancient mixed martial arts, and I mean, even MMA these days, a lot more rules in that one than um, uh, than they had back in ancient Greece. Let me tell you that pankration involved elements of both boxing and wrestling. Uh, you know, you could punch and grapple and kick and, and everything else like that. But you could also do things like choke your opponent to death or break their fingers until they conceded. I mean, almost anything went. It was an incredibly violent sport. It wasn't unusual for athletes to come out of the bouts with with extremely nasty injuries. That is, if they survived, <laughs> if they survived the bouts that they were fighting, death was a, a big part of this sport. I mean, it wasn't necessarily hugely common. But by the same token, if your opponent died while you were fighting them, hey, that's a win for you as long as you didn't break one of the two rules that the sport had. There were only two rules at Olympic uh, pancreation events. Number one, you weren't allowed to bite your opponent. And number two, you weren't allowed to gouge his eyes. That's it. Anything else went. The pancreation was absolutely brutal. You might remember, actually, from a previous episode. You might remember the story of uh, of Richion from uh, of of Figalia, right? Episode one hundred and twenty-six, the weirdest deaths episode. He died while fighting about at the uh, the five sixty-four BCE games. I'm not, I, you know, you have to go and listen to the episode to get the full story there. But despite dying, he was still crowned as the champion. Incredible story. You can get across it. Usually, if you died while you were fighting, you lost. But he managed to. to die and then win which was uh, which was really something but again death actually just a, a, it wasn't that un- i mean it wasn't that uncommon while most fights ended with a knockout or a submission if you killed your opponent while staying within the rules you'd usually be crowned, crowned the winner of the bout and that is not something that has survived through to the modern day in the olympics i'm very pleased to say we tend not to expect you know athletes to die in the course of competing these days which i think is a you know, an improvement, broadly speaking. As I say, Pancration was one of the most popular sports ever put on display in the ancient Olympic Games and talented fighters became enormously famous celebrities. The sport itself, hugely popular, And we do have a lot of information about it. It's it's fascinating. You can go online, you can read about the techniques and the strategies that fighters used to use, the chokehold, the the joint locks, the the positions they used to get themselves into, the stances, all that sort of stuff. Really, really interesting indeed. So if you want to go and read about the ancient sport of Pancration, there's a lot more information uh, on it available to us today than, than you might have imagined. Anyway. Broadly speaking, after the Pankration, not too not too many other events were introduced in the coming years. In 520, the hoplite race was added, uh, which was like a regular running race except the athletes ran in battle armor, which was uh, which was quite good. They ran in uh, you know, it's quite a pleasing thing to imagine, they ran in helmet greaves, big heavy shield. Although after a while the greaves were actually dropped and it just became uh, helmet and shield for the hoplite race. But wait, I hear you ask what were they wearing, if not their greaves? If they've dropped their greaves and they're running off down the track with their helmet and the shield, what else have they got? What else did they have on? Well, let me tell you this, just the standard traditional outfit of the ancient Olympic Games, which is to say, absolutely bloody nothing, mate. Not a stitch of clothing. That's right. For the overwhelming majority of the Olympic Games history, in most events, athletes competed in the rudy noody They didn't wear a thing. The only exception to this was in equestrian events where the charioteers would actually, they would be clothed. Uh, but apart from that, all the runners, all the wrestlers, everyone else, they competed naked with their bare asses just winking at the crowd as they went about their, you know, foot races or, or wrestling or whatever else like that. Incredible. The story goes that the tradition of competing naked dated back to 720 BCE when a runner called Orsippus, he dropped his drawers before running the stadium race and won the entire event and then said, ah, much easier to win, much easier to run while wearing nothing at all. And apparently it caught on and that was that. Although it may not have been old mate Orsippus finding an excuse to get his old fella out in the fresh air that began this tradition. There's talk that it might have been... Uh, Might have been the Spartans who first started stripping off to compete. The Spartans were known to have got their kits off. They'd rub themselves down with oil before competing. Very useful, I'd imagine, during the wrestling and whatnot like that. You'd you'd be slippery as a bloody fish, mate. But the bottom line is this. It is, in fact, 100% true that ancient Olympians used to compete as naked as the day they were born, with everything flopping and flapping about for the world to see. I can't imagine that running in the nude would be much fun. I mean, all the blokes who are, you know, rather generously endowed, they'd run a risk of bloody tripping over, you'd think. And and, and during the pancreation events, you're just giving your opponents something extra to grab a hold of, aren't you? But... That is how it was done. These athletes, they would oil up their Adonis-like figures, their rippling muscles, and they would get stuck in their wingos on proud display for the entire world to see. All of these sports, as I mentioned before, they were open to free Greek male citizens. So no slaves, no women, no non-Greeks. And there are a few other restrictions as well. If you were convicted of murder or of defiling a temple, uh, you couldn't take part. In addition to anyone who broke... The Olympic truce. Now we'll we'll talk about the Olympic truce in just a little bit, Um, but there were some restrictions on who could uh, who could take part in the games. But broadly speaking, open to again free Greek male citizens Um, and anyone who wanted to compete in the games. They had to train for at least ten months before arriving in Olympia, and they had to arrive a month before the games began. On top of that, a lot of the athletes were military men; they were soldiers. Uh, many of the sports involved were, of course, very useful to soldiers, so it was a natural fit for them, whether it was wrestling or running or whatever else. A lot of soldiers were able to easily you know, go from the soldiering life to the athlete's life. Um, and many of them competed uh, simultaneously across different sports and events vying for the prizes on offer. And what were those prizes, I hear you ask? Well, as I mentioned before, there were no medals. That was a modern invention. Winning athletes were instead given olive branches cut from the sacred trees at Olympia itself and a wreath of olive leaves as well. Now, some chariot racers get a bit of red ribbon, as it was usually the owner of the horse rather than the race that got the branch and wreath, as I mentioned. But between a stick and some leaves or a bit of red ribbon, not much of a bloody prize. A few garden clippings, you'd think, but that was how it was done. The real prize was, of course, the prestige, the fame, the fortune, the glory uh, that came with being known as an Olympic champion. Now, you know, I guess you didn't back then, you didn't get your endorsement deals for breakfast cereals or or air conditioners, but still, not too bad. There were a range of benefits that successful athletes enjoyed. But it it, it goes so much further than this, the the ancient Olympic Games. It wasn't just about sport and it wasn't just about these competitions. The ancient Olympic Games were much like today. They were about much more than just the sports on display and the prizes that the athletes won. They were part, as I said, of a celebration in honour of Zeus, right, the king of the Greek gods. And so there was parting, there was feasting, there was drinking, all the rest of it to go along with these events. Additionally, artists of all kinds were invited to the events to create works chronicling and honouring the athletes that competed, which, of course, only made these athletes more famous and is one of the biggest reasons that we know so much about the ancient Olympic Games these days is because these artists, these painters, these sculptors, these poets, they came along and they gave us a bunch of source material that has lasted the years and and taught us about these ancient games. Sculptors would create sculptures of athletes, painters would paint jars and urns, poets would write poems, musicians would compose songs, and in many ways, these artists in doing that were also competing because successful or popular songs and poems, they were passed down from generation to generation. They were fed into the stories, the myths myths and legends of the games. And um, additionally, the venue of the games themselves in terms of cultural output in Olympia, it the, 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 the complex became filled with, with huge, opulent buildings as time went on, including, of course, the mighty statue of Zeus, one of, the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I talked about this before. But there were showcases of art and culture. And, 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 you know, the ancient Olympic Games, it became a massive cultural event as well as a sporting one. But it goes even further than that. Because one of the most important aspects of the Games, just as with today, was the political side. The ancient Olympic Games were a way for conflicting rival city-states to compete peacefully, or relatively peacefully at least, and gain prestige and power without taking to the battlefield. Ancient Greece was not a unified nation, not not at all. Ancient Greeks, they spoke similar languages, they shared similar culture, but city-states were deeply divided, and the Olympic Games were an opportunity to test some of these old rivalries. Ahead of the scheduled games, as I mentioned before, there would be an Olympic truce. Any city-state who broke it would be banned from the event, and given the importance of the games, it wasn't very often that the truce was broken. Even in times of all-out war, for example, like the Peloponnesian War that pitted Sparta against Athens, the Olympic truces gave both sides a chance to not only contest each other on a different battlefield, but also try to pull together or announce political or military alliances with other city-states. Under this Olympic truce, under the banner of peace, that uh, you know that all these different city states abided by most of the time, at least. Further than this, right? Further than the truce, further than the uh, than you know the the wars that had been put on hold or whatever else. Successful athletes from from uh, you know from various city states, they became enormously famous and were useful propaganda tools for the city states that they represented. For for instance. Some Greek city-states would send famous Olympic champions to colonies that they were attempting to settle as a way to entice people to move to these new colonies and establish and bolster Greek culture there. You'd get these people going, oh, bloody, what's his name as... You know, that famous wrestlers move to such and such a place. Let's go there. We might end up being next door neighbors. And this was actually a political and a cultural tool that ancient Greek city states used to spread their influence throughout the Greek world and beyond, you know, into these areas they were trying to set up colonies. So absolutely fascinating, here. absolutely fascinating to see the way that. The reputations and the standings of various city-states could be made or broken at the ancient games. The political ramifications of what happened at these ancient Olympic games, they were huge. And can I tell you this? This hasn't changed. It hasn't changed at all with the modern Olympics. For example, think about in 1936 when Hitler used the Berlin Olympic Games as a political tool, tool to promote Nazism. Or in 1980, and 1984, during the Cold War, where huge boycotts took place on either side of the Iron Curtain in the games held in Moscow and Los Angeles, respectively, the US and the Soviet Union boycotted each other's games. And, you know, it was, a, it was an enormous deal. There, there, have been other, there have been plenty of other boycotts that have happened throughout uh, the history of the Olympics for various reasons, protesting apartheid in South Africa, all sorts of stuff. And then you think of other more specific examples, like one of the most famous images of all time in Olympic history came from the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City when Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the American athletes, they uh, they raised their fists. They were wearing black gloves on their fists and they raised their fists in the Black Power salute at the medal ceremony of the 200-metre race to protest racial inequality. This is an absolutely, absolutely iconic image that was given a massive platform due to the power and the prestige of the Olympic Games. Politics have always been a part of events like these Two thousand years ago in today's modern era it doesn't matter you cannot take politics out of events like this it is they, they are baked in to massive high profile sporting events like like the olympic games anyway as i mentioned as the centuries passed various new sports were added the ancient olympic games they grew in fame in prestige they became a hugely important political religious and of course sporting festival every four years What's interesting, though, is outside of those uh, four years, Olympus was a very quiet and quite rural religious sanctuary. A few people hung about to look after the temples and whatnot, put the place to some use by doing things like growing wheat on the running track. Can you imagine that? Think about old Olympic venues. I mean, you know, they, they, they literally sowed crops on where these, you know, these uh, these athletes would compete. Um. But every four years, the place turned into the political, cultural, and sports and sporting centre point of the of the entire Greek world. There was, in time, a massive forty thousand person stadium was built. It would fill up. Huge feasts would take place. Hundreds of oxen would be slaughtered in Zeus's name and then devoured. The entire complex would be filled not just with athletes and spectators, but also travelling merchants and traders looking to sell things. There were no permanent uh, lodgings or residences for anyone who wanted to visit. Rich and poor alike had to set up camps and uh, the whole thing was just a a, a massive big festival. Eventually, particularly after the Roman conquest of Greece throughout the 2nd century BCE, Olympia also became a tourist attraction. People would travel to visit the complex. They'd marvel at its temples and the huge statue of Zeus. Don't forget that the statue of Zeus built in the 5th century BCE by this stage is already very old. It's like us going and visiting an ancient palace or not an ancient palace, an old palace from, you know, 200, 250 years ago and marveling at that. Tourists came to see these old um, Olympic uh, buildings and statues and whatever else. It was a, It was a tourist attraction. But uh, over time, you know, as we continue further in towards the the common era, interest in the games, it waxed and it waned throughout the centuries. They remained a pretty big deal throughout most of their entire lifespan. And, And, you know, this was, it was a long lifespan. Make no mistake. Don't forget that even by the time we get to people like Julius Caesar, Cleopatra, these are people that, again, we tend to conflate with the ancient era. Oh, Socrates, Julius Caesar, the Olympic Games, all basically the same, right? No, Julius Caesar lived... 400 years after Socrates. Uh, The Olympic Games were established 300 years before him. You know, by the time we get to someone like Cleopatra, the Olympics have been around for seven centuries. For them, for someone like Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, the Olympics were as old as the Black Death is to us today. They've been around a long time, and they would continue for a long time even after Caesar and Cleopatra as we move into the Common Era. But as I say, Moving into the Common Era was when we finally begin to see the decline of the ancient Olympic Games, particularly in the 3rd and the 4th centuries CE. The ancient Olympic Games, they fell into decline, and their final death knell was Roman Emperor Theodosius I, who was a Christian. He announced a ban on all pagan festivals in 393 CE. Well, the Games were, after all, a celebration in honor of Zeus, and so they fell under this ban. And while there were small-scale sporting competitions that may have been held after this ban was instituted, none ever rivaled the popularity and the importance of the ancient Olympic Games at their peak. It was an unfortunate end, you would think, to a sporting event that had almost 1,200 years of history behind it. But if there's one thing that Christians love to do, it is ruin other people's fun. So it's hardly surprising. Now, after their decline, of course, the Olympic Games became a a dusty relic of the past, and even the interest in the Olympia as a as a tourist attraction, you know, sort of fell by the wayside. But there was a revival of interest in the ancient Olympic Games, of course, in the late nineteenth century. A French nobleman nobleman named Pierre de Coubertin, right? He revived this idea of a grand sporting championship to be held every four years, and in some ways, not in all ways, he modelled this new championship on the ancient Olympic Games. He was instrumental in the establishment of the International Olympic, Olympic Committee, the IOC. It still governs the Olympics to this very day. Uh, well, to this very day quite literally, actually, at the time of recording with the Tokyo Games going on as I speak. But today, the modern Olympic Games actually have much in common with their ancient predecessors despite all the differences you know there are many differences ancient greek athletes didn't compete for medals as i mentioned there were no prizes for second or third if you're not first you're bloody last mate um there are other differences as well the olympic flame and torch relay are largely modern inventions they didn't appear at ancient games it uh it, i mean it makes sense the relay wouldn't be much of a relay starting and ending in olympia That you get the bloke who lights it okay lit the torch off we go oh I'm here already that that wasn't you know that wasn't too bad in fact actually I, i learned this this is a bit of an unfortunate history of the olympics here the the torture relay was actually um it dates back to its origin story dates back to the 1936 games held in berlin of course uh run by hitler and the nazis and the the torture relay was used as a political tool uh to promote nazism not the greatest origin story for a now immortal ritual that still gets carried out today it was actually used as a it was it was the brainchild of of the Nazi organizers of the 1936 Olympics as a, as a way to promote um you know their their entire deal so not great but um you know despite the differences that we can point out between the ancient and the modern Olympic games there is much in common between these two different eras of of Olympic history Both the ancient and the modern games, massive spectacles of sporting and athletic skill, attracting huge audiences from far-flung locations. Both are incredibly important cultural events. Uh, While the ancient games celebrated Greek culture, um, the more nomadic nature of the modern games showcases cultures from, from many different parts of the world. And both the ancient and modern games were enormously significant political events as well. We talked about this earlier. I want to reiterate, you just can't keep politics out of events like these. You can look at the political ramifications of the ancient games and compare them with things like modern boycotts and other issues that have arisen from um, uh, Olympic games in more recent times. But in my mind, the most interesting comparison between these events... It's not a question of sport. It's not a question of culture, not a question of politics. It's not about, about the events, the sports, the disciplines that they involved or any of the rituals surrounding them. The most important, again, in, in my view, this isn't necessarily objective, but in my view, the most interesting thing to look at when comparing these two, uh, you know, these two epochs of, of, of history of the, of, the, of the games is considering the longevity of the ancient games compared to the extreme brevity of the modern ones. I think most people today feel like the modern Olympic Games have got a long and deep-seated history, you know, they've got tradition that dates back over a century, over 120 years now. They've been a huge part of global culture. But 120 years is basically one-tenth of the time for which the ancient games were 10%, a tiny fraction of the nearly 1,200-year history of the ancient games. You know, the ancient games, granted, didn't have an audience of billions. They didn't have thousands of athletes from around the globe. They didn't have anything other than sticks and leaves as prizes. But the ancient Olympic Games were an institution that lasted over a millennia before finally dying out. Only then, later, to be revived and be reborn anew centuries later. And that, sports fans, is some real staying power. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. And once again, just like with the History of Football episode, it is very rare that we get to say sports fans and actually mean it, but a bit of sporting history for people to enjoy I do have you enjoyed it. Certainly it was fascinating to, to learn all this stuff about the ancient Olympics and, you know, maybe it'll change the way you look at the modern Olympics or at least make you a little more interesting to talk to in the boring small talk you have to do with your co-workers about the Olympic Games, that sort of stuff. You can talk about the, you know pancreation how people used to die or how everyone got their kid off and run around in the rudy noody with things flapping around everywhere as they ran down the stadium so you know there there's my gift to you for this week you're now a slightly more interesting conversational partner around the water cooler at your work anyway that is that for this week at Half-House History of course uh, all the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way here and now history.net. contact form there if you want to suggest a an episode uh topic Anchor.fm for your subscription options there. If you want to subscribe to the show on various pipes and platforms, you can do it there on Anchor. Thanks to Anchor for hosting the show, of course. Uh, If you want to support the show more directly, you can go to patreon.com slash half history, a range of tiers at which you can subscribe. And um, while the merch situation at the moment is not great, I want to reiterate that I do have plans. Uh, it will be on, uh, later on towards the end of the year that they come to fruition. Again, the stuff that I'm pulling together is taking some time, but rest assured that there is uh, there are more merch options coming your way once I get all my ducks in a row, and so you'll be able to throw money at me hand over fist in a way of your choosing in order to uh, bedeck yourself in the uh, in the in the latest and greatest half host history merch that is coming. Uh, don't worry about it. I've uh, I've not forgotten. Anyway, thanks for being part of the show this week. See you back here for more nonsense, of course, in a in a week's time. Until then, leaving you with a question about the Olympics posed on Reddit. Here's by redditor Puzzle Button, who asks, My doctor said I have athlete's foot. How long do I have to wait until I can compete at the Olympics?